really big had just happened. The Holy Spirit, who had been promised by Jesus that, that he would send him, finally came. And it would have been impossible if he were there during that time in Jerusalem to have missed it because the Holy Spirit made sure that they didn't. When he came, he came with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. He came with the appearance of tons of fire on a number of 120 believers. He, when he came, there were, there were uneducated men and women who automatically begin to speak in languages that they had never formerly known. And in the midst of all this miraculous activity, you, you had to know that this would have gotten the crowd's attention. The group of people who had gathered there in Jerusalem to uh, take part in, in um, the day of Pentecost. And when they heard this sound, they came running. And then when they heard these individuals begin to speak the wonders of God in their own language, they instantly wanted to know, what is all of this mean? What's the meaning of all of this? So, so picture this. There's 120 dedicated followers of Jesus Christ who had gathered together to pray, to wait on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, and now they are surrounded by literally hundreds and even thousands of people have gathered around them. And, and, and so they have their undivided attention. The question is, what do they say? What do they say at this point when they're looking to them for answers? Well, Peter, being the leader of the group, stands up, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to speak. And what do you think he began to speak about? It's a great question. What do you, what do you think he, he decided? Hey, thousands of people, I've got their attention. What is it that I should be saying right now? What do you think he said? Well, in light of the fact that the Holy Spirit had come, the promised Holy Spirit, this was the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy, it was the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that he would send a comforter. And then on top of that, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. What do you think he speaks about? Well, I would think he would speak about, well, the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is we find he makes almost no mention of the Holy Spirit at all. Instead, what he does is he does everything he can to draw everyone's attention to Jesus. That's what he wants to do. You know, as a pastor here at Mercy Hill, uh, I'll meet people that are moving and they're looking for churches. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll run into someone and after telling them, after a very awkward conversation of what I do for a living, sometimes sometimes it's awkward. Some people are like, hey, that's great. Sometimes it gets really strange, right? And so somebody turns to me and they go, hey, well, listen, we're new in the community and we're actually looking for a spirit-filled church. Is Mercy Hill a spirit-filled church? And I say, with all confidence and conviction, absolutely, Mercy Hill is a spirit-filled church. And I say that, and, but I know that they're probably thinking something completely different than I am by spirit-filled. They have a completely different definition. What they're thinking, most likely, is this, is that we're a church that majors on the Holy Spirit. We talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. We exalt the Holy Spirit a lot. That, that we really emphasize, put a heavy emphasis on the, on, the, on the supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, miracles. That, we're, that There's a heavy emphasis on this. But what's interesting about that definition is I don't think that it would be the same definition that Peter would have had of what he would have thought to be a spirit-filled church. Remember, the Holy Spirit had just come. He was filled with the Spirit, but he makes almost no mention of the Holy Spirit. He, be, he just begins to make much of Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Why? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. He never tries to exalt himself. He always just says, hey, 
hey, don't look at me. Look at him. Look at Christ. And so he does that. And so here's the deal. That was a day that tons of people gathered together. Guess what? This Easter weekend, we have more people than we do any other time of year. Lots of people come and they gather. And so what I wanted to do today was just follow the direction of Peter and the Holy Spirit. And all I want to do today is not teach you anything new per se. It may be new for some, but not teach you anything new, but teach you what is true and just direct your attention to the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, the little bit of time that we have together, uh, what I, I believe that the Holy Spirit would want us to draw our attention to Jesus in three ways. To Jesus in three ways. First of all, I believe he wants to draw our attention to the person of Jesus. To the person of Jesus. Look, if you will, again at verse 22 with me. The Bible says there, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. I think it's interesting that Peter, when talking to the crowd, refers to Christ as Jesus of Nazareth. We, we know through the scriptures, through the gospels, that on many occasions, people who weren't even close to Christ would refer to him a, a, in this way. In fact, we find out at Jesus' crucifixion that even the Romans, they, 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 they inscribe a, a sign above Jesus' head, and, and it's this name, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, that they inscribe on this plaque at his crucifixion. And so what we know is we know that people knew Jesus by this official name, Jesus of Nazareth. When they mentioned it, they knew exactly who they were talking about. There was no confusion about what Jesus they were speaking about in the first century. Now, I believe that Peter is doing this purposely because he understands that he needs to connect with the crowd. He's got all this crowd listening to him. And I think what he's trying to do is, is he's trying to find some common ground with people that he knows completely disagrees with him concerning who Jesus actually was. He knows that they know who Jesus is, but he doesn't want to begin. He believes he's the Messiah, the promised Messiah. The group that's gathered clearly do not believe he is. And so what he wants to do is he wants to find some common ground, something that they can agree upon. So what he does is he begins to tell them, he talks with them about the historical living, breathing Jesus. He says, you know that man, Jesus of Nazareth, and everybody who showed up on that day, not a one of them would have doubted the historicity of that particular man during that day. They would have believed them. And in the same way, 2,000 years later, even if you're here today, maybe you're an atheist, maybe you don't believe in God at all, or maybe you're an agnostic and you just don't think God cares about us, or, or maybe you're even antagonistic to the gospel and to the Bible and to the things of God. Wherever you are, all of those people still, even to this day, the greatest critics of Christianity still believe in a historical Jesus. They still believe that he was a man who existed 2,000 years ago. The difference is, who was he fully? So Peter begins where almost everybody in here would agree. Hey, we believe in a historical Jesus. We believe he was back then. We may not believe he's God, but we do believe this. And then he begins where everybody can agree. And then he begins to push the needle a little bit. He begins to poke the bear, if you will. And then he begins to say he was a man, but he was more than just a man. He says he was a man attested to you by God. That, that phrase attested to you by God just simply means he, it was, he, he showed validation that he was a man sent to you by God. How was he validated in such a way? And he tells them, he says, through, 
through the, these signs, these mighty works, wonders in signs that Jesus had performed. Now, Jesus, we know, if you are familiar with the Bible at all, had performed an astronomical number of, of miracles. And, and somebody will say, well, what, what difference is that? We, we look at the Old Testament, and we find people uh, performing miracles all the time. We see Moses, we see Elijah, we see Elisha. What's so different about this Jesus? What's different is he takes miracles and the performing of these miracles to a completely different level. Here was a man whose whole life was bookend by miracles, right? It began, his earthly life began with the virgin birth, a miracle. It, it ended with the resurrection from the dead. It ended in a miracle. And in between, during his earthly ministry, he was, he was performing astounding miracles. In fact, the Bible records distinctly at least 37 different miracles in which he performed at the time. Now, so, so that, you know, when I talk miracles, I mean miracles that can be validated. We're talking about people who were blind that now see, people who couldn't walk that now walk, people who were dead who are now alive. I grew up in a church where we were always praying for each other. We wanted to see the supernatural. So in one Bible study, we lined all of us up and we said, hey, we want to see the work of God. They said, who has a short leg? And so we all walked around and go, I think I do here. Put your legs together. And I'm like, mine's a little short. I didn't know it. And so lay down. And we're praying for these legs to come out. And I think every one of us, were faking it, right? We're like, yeah, watch this. Whoop, man, God's awesome, right? We're not talking about that kind of stuff or stuff that can't be validated. We're talking about stuff that people look at and they go, absolutely, this is of God. That's how he was validated. But it was, even though the Bible only records 37 such miracles of Jesus, what we find is John in his gospel tells us that that was just a fraction of what he had actually performed. The Bible says in, in John chapter 21, verse 25, he says, now there were also many other things that Jesus did, speaking of his miracles. And he says, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written about all that he miraculously did. He says, look, you couldn't even write it all down. I don't think if we filled the whole world up with books that, of writing about God's goodness that you could write all of the miracles that he would do. Now, the question is, why such an emphasis on miracles? Here, here's why. The Jewish people that he came to, that he, was, that, that, that he was coming to, and to let them know that he was the Messiah, come to be able to save them, the Bible says that they demand a sign in order to believe. In other words, there were a lot of people pretending to be God during that day and prophets of God, so they had to have a way to distinguish who was of God and who was not, so they would demand of them. You say you're of God, show us a sign. Jesus shows up, country, lover, country music lovers, and says, here's your sign. Here's your sign. And he, and he shows sign after sign after sign after sign. So many signs that the people don't even know what to do with all of these things. They can't even record all of these miracles. Now, stop and think about this for a moment. Any person who was gathered there that day of the hundreds and thousands of people who had seen Jesus, heard about Jesus, seen all of these miracles take place, any one of them could have pushed the baloney button. All right? You know what that is, right? I, I call baloney on that. That's, that's not true. They said, hey, Jesus is saying that he's throwing all these miracles out. I'm telling you, he didn't. He said that he walked on the water. Nope, sandbar. Me and the family last weekend took the pontoon boat. We got stuck on the same one. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a sandbar. This whole multiplying the fish and the loaves, no way. I saw Peter, James, and John in three different food trucks throwing out bread and fish to people. No miracle. But here's what's crazy about this. Not a one denied 
the miracles that Jesus had performed, not a one of them did when they had the opportunity. Why? Because he was who he said he was. He was a man, but he was far more than that. He had validated by the works that he performed that he was the very son of God. And what the Holy Spirit would want you and I and our attention to be drawn to is the person of Jesus. But not only the person of Jesus, he would also draw our attention to our position before Jesus. So here, what, 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 what Peter's doing so, so well is he's engaging the mind. He's dealing with the facts. You knew Jesus. You knew where he's from. You saw everything that he did. He did it in your midst. As you know, he did these things. And now he's going to move from the head, and he's going to drive straight to the heart now that he has their attention. And how do you think the people would respond to somebody who came, who was validated that they were truly from God? What do you think they would do? How do you think that they would treat him? He says in verse 23, if you will, he said, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. This man, this God-man who came, they killed him. And the issue there is when we begin to wonder that, and, and, and I love the way that he writes this out because he says, no, you, it wasn't actually your hand that, that actually beat him with a cat of nine tails. It wasn't, it wasn't actually your hand that drove the nails in his hands and in his feet. It wasn't, it wasn't your hands that fashioned a crown of thorns and beat it down upon his head. No, it wasn't you. You guys had somebody else do it. You had the Romans be able to do it for you. They were, he says, you are equally as guilty. You put Christ to death on the cross. And we know through the rest of the, 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 the crucifixion story, we do know that the spiritual leaders were behind this. The whole time, they just wanted Jesus gone, and they tried time after time after time until finally they succeeded. But this large group of people who weren't part of the spiritual uh, uh, upper echelon, they were guilty as well. Why? Because at one point, they had the opportunity to free Christ, their Messiah, but they chose, and they, and, they, and they yelled for a man by the name of Barabbas, who was a common thief, to be freed instead of this Christ. And he was set free. And then the group, this large group, who's gathered even here today, begin to shout out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now the question is, how does that happen? How does a man who is clearly from God who is the promised Messiah, how do the people get to the point after seeing all of the evidence of who he is, how do they ultimately come to the point where they reject him fully to the point of putting him to death? How in the world does this happen? And the answer, I think, of that is to remember that they didn't always and immediately reject Jesus. They, they, they loved Jesus when he was feeding them. When he was multiplying food, giving them free bread, they were following him around the, the Sea of Galilee. They, they were like, hey, feed us, we love you. They loved him as long as they were helping their afflictions and, and healing their sicknesses. Loved him as long as they thought that he might be the possible Messiah that might throw off the Roman, the, the Roman uh, oppression of them. Look, if Jesus is going to do that, then they're all Jesus all the time. Let me state it for you another way. They wanted Jesus as long as Jesus would give them the desires of their idolatrous hearts. They had no desire for Jesus. They only had a desire for what it is that they thought that Jesus could ultimately do for him. The moment that Jesus cut them off, they cut him to shreds because they didn't want that type of Messiah. Now, that is a horrendous story, heavy story, but What's even more sad about the story is that there are many people, even in our same culture, 2,000 years later, that respond to Jesus in the same way. 
That they, they, were grow, they grew up in church. There's a little bit of spirituality. There's a little bit of, hey, my grandfather said, my mom said, kind of heard the stories. And so they're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Look, part of America is to be Christian. I kind of engage those things. And, and the truth is they only turn to Christ when there's a need. There's only turn to Christ when there's a sickness. They only turn to Christ when there's something difficult in their life that they need him to do for them. But if Jesus isn't willing to be able to do it, they don't want to have anything to do with him, don't want to have anything to do with the church, don't want to have anything to do with, with, with God's people. In, in fact, what they'll do is they will follow him until Jesus answers the prayer. Once they answer the prayer, they're gone. They have no use for Jesus anymore. Or they will hang in there, pray to Jesus, try to do this Christian thing, follow him. And if he doesn't give them what they want, they leave as well because they think, what is the point? What is the point? If Jesus isn't going to give me what it is that I really, really desire then why in the world am I going to follow him to begin with? So much like the people in Acts 2, many people see little, little need for a suffering Savior. See, if, if the idea there, just follow me for a moment, if, if the idea there in someone's mind is that Jesus was truly a man of God, that he had been validated by God through all of these miracles, so we have to suggest this guy must be God. He can only do what God says and then if we agree that he suffered and died on the cross and we embrace that, we have to answer the question, why did he suffer and he die? Why did he do? And according to the scriptures, the reason that he died was for you and for me and for the sin in which we've committed against him. See, this is where it gets really messy. People are like, well, wait a minute. I don't mind talking about Jesus if he's going to help me get a raise, if he's going to make my kids behave, if he's going to heal me from this cancer. But the moment you begin to talk about a suffering servant, it makes me feel really, really uncomfortable because if he died for me, that doesn't make sense because you need to understand I'm not that bad of a person. I'm just not that bad. I haven't done all those things. Look, there's people that are way worse than me. They have done way worse sins than what I ultimately have. Here's what we need to understand. From God's perspective, we are all guilty of the greatest sin, and that is because we've disobeyed him, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. It was the only way to reconcile you with him. Therefore, all of us are guilty, as this first group was, of the crucifixion of the Savior of the world. It doesn't get any more sinful than that. So, we talk about the Holy Spirit wants to draw the picture, uh, our, our attention to who Jesus is. He's a man, but he's also fully God, demonstrated through the miracles that he performed. You and I, he wants to draw our attention to our position before God. And what is our position before Jesus Christ? One of guilt, that we are guilty, sinning against God and guilty of being the ones of why he was ultimately crucified. Now, in the midst of this, how do you think God's going to respond Listen, I'm the type, just like you, I don't like people messing with my kids. Are you the same way? I feel bad for all of you that are teachers. Every time you have to reprimand one of the children and send a note home, because we are living in a completely different time, are we not? Man, when it was, hey, sending a note home to your parents, I feared my parents because they were going to kill me, right? Now it's kind of like, I, I feel bad for the parents because they're like, hey, you're, you know, little Johnny was disobeying. And the next thing you know, they're having a parent-teacher conference and this poor teacher is being torn to shreds. Don't mess with Johnny, right? And it's that overprotectiveness or whatever. Well, what do you think the God of the universe does when he sends his only son and they crucify him? How do they respond? I'll tell you how he responds. In grace and in mercy. 
He provides, and what the Holy Spirit would want to draw our attention to is the provision of Jesus. Look, if you will, in verse 24. I heard some of you go, amen this, so let's get to it. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because he was, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, let's, um, let's unpack that for a minute. We, it sounds really good. I heard some of you, amen. Did you amen when I read that in the beginning? But we need to know what we're amening. I grew up in a church that we amen a lot of things. Like, I remember a guy always saying, he was one of the elders in the church, he would get up every time, he goes, we just need to get under the spout where the glory falls out, and everybody would amen, and I'm like, I don't know what that means, right? <laughs> so, I'm still looking for the fount, and so, and so, so with this, okay, amen, that sounds really good, but what does it mean? When he says that he was being loosed from the pangs of death, the pangs with G at the end of it, He's talking about the pains that a woman experiences through childbirth. Amen, ladies, right? Amen. <laughs> and uh, the, the childbirth. And what, what he's doing, it's interesting because the Bible actually uses this as an analogy or a picture or illustration in the Old Testament and New Testament to be able to speak about periods of time, of history, that were defined by great difficulty, great pain, great suffering, but it was a very short period of time. And when that time was over it would immediately be replaced by something mind-blowingly wonderful, all right? So you see the analogy with, 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 uh, with the birth, right? And so let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, Jesus begins to speak about the end times, uh, famines, earthquakes, all these things are going to happen in the very last days. You know, if you read Left Behind, you know all about this. And so uh, there they are, and, and, and all these bad things are happening. The Bible is just, Jesus was telling about this period of time that would come at the very end of human history, and it was going to be very bad, very intense suffering, very harsh, but really very short period of time throughout all human history. But then it's going to be removed, and something very wonderful is going to come. What's going to come? Jesus in the second coming. So we see this. Now, if, if you've ever had a child, all right, and, and I'm, I'm including you men, even though we didn't actually have the child, you know men, let me speak to the men for a second, you know it's nearly impossible to do a good job of encouraging your wife in the midst of labor. Would you agree with that? It's almost impossible because you can't just say everything. You can't like put your game face coach, you know, in there and go, come on, bring it out, come on, you can do that, yeah. You can't get up there and go, hey man, you just, honey, you just need to suck it up. Put your big girl britches on, you know, and get in there. It can't possibly be that bad, right? Don't, don't do any of this, all right? I have never done that. Dan did that and he told me, gave me this illustration. And so, our, our youth pastor, and so I know, okay, and so you, 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 don't, you don't do that. Listen, here's about the only way that you can encourage and do this very gently and humbly is in the midst of it to sit there and first of all go, I am so, so sorry. I am sorry. And what you were going through, I can't imagine. I've never gone through anything like this before, but here's what I want you to understand, honey, is it is going to be intense and it is going to be bad and it's going to be mind-blowing but it is going to break away and it's going to come to an instantaneous end. And when it does, something wonderful is going to come. Our little baby boy, our little baby girl, life is going to come at the end of this intense time of suffering. You see where Peter is coming. He's saying the same thing. He says that Jesus Christ suffered in an unimaginably intense way. Let me unpack that for a moment. I'm not suggesting that his death was more painful than any other death that anybody else has ever experienced. And I, I'm saying this, I don't want to cause you to stumble, 
But what I'm saying is it was a horrendous way to be able to die, but it wasn't horrendous primarily just because of what he experienced physically. When he was on the cross, the very wrath of God towards sinners who had rebelled against him for you and for me and for all people fell on him in that very short window of time and to the point to where it put him to death. And when he was placed in death, he was placed in a tomb, but he could not remain there. He could not remain there. And he was resurrected, and something wonderful came of it. His life and our life. His life and our life. Now, he says that he could not be held there. He couldn't remain in that grave, and we need to know why that is. Two very quick reasons. Number one, it was impossible for him to be held down. Why? Because this was a part of God's plan from the beginning. God said that he would not remain in the grave. He said that he would resurrect. We, we read this in verse, the beginning of verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan in, in, in foreknowledge of God. Now, you sit there and somebody might say, well, wait a minute, I thought you said that it was the wickedness of man that put Jesus to death. Yes, but in the same time, it was within God's own sovereign plan from the beginning of time that he knew the wickedness of man's heart and he would take the infinite act of evil and wickedness and he would turn it to the ultimate good of God's people by using the death of the Messiah to bring people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group to faith in Jesus Christ. So we understand that. And what he does, he gives evidence of that. You say, how do you know this was God's plan? And he quotes for King David from Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And let me, let me you guys are doing so well. Let me just stick with me for one moment. This is, this is how most of these Old Testament prophecies go. You're reading, you're, you're reading what they're writing, and at first they're writing about themselves, and then all of a sudden, they go off into these, in, in these verses, and you're like, I don't think they're talking about themselves anymore. This is what we see with David's prophecy. Follow along with me. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Up to that point, you can understand he's having a bad day, and he knows that God is going to be there with him and to carry him through this. But then... He goes off into something that you're like, this can't relate to him. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is the grave. It's not hell. It's Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. So he stops at that point, And then all of a sudden you're like, you're not talking about David anymore. Because what we find is Peter begins to address them in verses 29 through 35. And he basically just tells them, hey, guys, we know he couldn't have been talking about himself because we know where David's grave is. Even today, you go to the promised land, you go over there, and according to tradition, we know where his bones lay. He says, so he couldn't have been talking to him because he remained in that grave. At least his body did. And then he turns around and says, who was he talking about? Somebody greater than him. He was talking about the Messiah. And he says, and he could not stay because God said he would not allow him to remain in the grave. Here's the second reason. The second reason is that he did not remain in the tomb because the penalty had been paid. The penalty had been paid. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin and death. That means the penalty of our sin towards the holy God is not only a physical death, but it is a spiritual death, an eternal death. And he says, and that's, that's what happens. Look, if we break the law, listen, we have to believe in justice, do we not? When, when a child, when a young child is, is taken advantage of or put to death, you and I know that something has to happen to that turkey that, that, that messed with that child. That is, it is not right for him to be able to not see justice. In the same way, for all who have sinned against God, it is not right 
for those who rebel against their creator God, an infinite power above us for us not to be judged by God. We must be judged by him. And so what happens is it says the wages of sin is death. That means the penalty of our sin towards him is physical and spiritual, eternal death against God. Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Our sins were placed on him. The wrath of God was poured out on him. His life was taken. Three days later, he rises from the grave. Why? Because the penalty had been paid. When a person has a prison sentence because of what they did, when that prison sentence is up, they go free. Why? Because the penalty had been paid. So when Jesus raises from the dead, God's saying, there is no reason for you to remain there. Penalty, all of the debts have been paid, not only in Christ's situation, but guess what? For everyone who is in Christ, for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, they now, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And guess what? Just as Christ comes alive, you and I come spiritually alive. Amen, 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 and amen. Yes? By the way, that's where you put the amen, all right? Now, now here's the deal. So this is where the Holy Spirit wants to lead us, of the, the person of Jesus, our place before him of guilt, the provision of God in light of that, but how do we get that? That's what Peter says. I'll close with this. And I'm going to ask Nick to come at this time. Here, just follow with me. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They knew that what he was saying was true. There was a conviction that came upon them. They knew that they had to do something. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? We have to respond. We're, we're guilty of this. And he says to them, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I, I love that he says, hey, what do we do? He says, you need to repent. Now, now stick with me. Just, just give me just a couple more minutes, and we're, we're, this, this pain is going to be over, all right? All right, this birth pain is going to be over. For some of you, like, thank Jesus, all right? Here, here's the deal. One of, the, one, of the, one of the most destructive teachings, in my opinion, in the last 30 years in church culture has been this idea of easy believism. And what I mean by that is that people will just say, hey, man, if you just believe the truths of the gospel, that you're a sinner, that Jesus died for you, he was the son of God, he died in the cross, he rose on the third day for, you, for, on the third day for your sin, then you will be saved. And what they're doing, now I believe a portion of that, absolutely, it's by faith that we are saved. But the key is, the difference is, what do we mean by faith? And by faith, I don't think the Bible means, hey, just ascribe to these things and acknowledge that these things are true. True faith is always demonstrated in action, and true faith is demonstrated through repentance. Repentance means that you are turning from sin and self and you're returning to the arms of God and receiving the free gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. See, many people who show up on Easter or whatever, and this is okay, we're not convicting anybody, but they think they have a relationship with God because they walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and signed a card so many years ago. But the truth is that they're deceived because there's never been a time that they've placed their faith in God such a way that it led to their life being modeled through repentance. They're still living for what they did before they got saved. They're still following after what they got saved. But now they think they just have fire insurance because they believe the truths of the gospel. But the truth is it's not a saving belief in the gospel. 
Repenting does not save you. Repentance is a demonstration that there is true saving faith. You don't sit there and go, I'm going to clean up my, my act. I'm going to clean up my, 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 my music collection, all that. We're, we're, not talking, uh, we're not talking about that, that somehow that makes you right before God. It just simply means that when you call out for mercy from God and forgiveness for God, he puts a new spirit in you, as he says. He forgives your sin, puts a new spirit in you, and he gives you a new desire for the things of God. Now you hate the things that you used to love, and you love the things that you used to hate. That's the sign that the Holy Spirit now dwells within you. So I wonder where you are in this whole thing this morning. Where are you? You came and said, hey, man, we're just, just trying to get this thing over. I, I, I get that. Two things. Either right now your heart is rejoicing because everything that has been said, you say spot on, this is right, amen, and amen. And I praise God for that. Or two, your heart has been cut to the quit. Your heart has been cut by what is said. And this is not for me to try to make you uncomfortable. This is not for me because I don't like you. This is because I love you. If I did not warn you, of the impending judgment of God, what love would there be in that? None whatsoever. And so what I would call you to be able to do is to understand who Christ is, understand our guilt before him, and understand that he has made that provision for you if you would repent and believe in Christ. I'm gonna ask you, if you will, to stand to your feet, and we're gonna pray, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be here and and if you want to talk more about this, if you, want to, if you want to know more about the person of Christ, I would love to be able to talk with you. Look, look at me just for a minute. I get it. Very nerve-wracking. Some of you are like, I will never walk down there. Completely okay. Completely okay. Here's what I want to do. Afterwards, I would love to talk with you. Nick would love to talk with you. Just grab somebody that looks like they belong here, all right? And just go, I want to know more about this Christ. And I guarantee you the heart of Mercy Hill, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to find those answers for you. But now is the time to do something. Go ahead, Nick. Do something in the response of what we've heard. Dear Jesus, we come to you. We ask that, God, that our hearts will rejoice in what we've heard today or we will repent and believe in what we heard today. God, the Holy Spirit wanted us to know these things just like he did 2,000 years ago. May we respond to the truth of your word. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Let's, let's respond and sing together, all right?
Amen. Well, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to pray. And again, I just want to, I want to thank you so much for all of our first-time guests who are here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for so much for uh, choosing of all the different churches in Nassau County, and there's a bunch of them, uh, to be able to come here. We thank you so much for that. And we're going to pray that the gospel that was preached this morning will continue to change us as we go. And so church family, just let you know, you're, you're not being sent out. You're being, I mean, you're not being told to go home. You're being sent out. You are missionaries here in Nassau County, North Florida. Take the gospel with you everywhere you go. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm just going to ask you to take some time just to reflect on the significance of the resurrection. Just take some time. Just take some time alone. Go to a room, wherever it is. Listen, this is something we, we as believers in Jesus Christ should be rejoicing over more than a ball game. More than a college football game. If you're a Gator, more mourn, less mourning, more rejoicing than a Gator fan, right? More, more than all that, just to be able to sit back and to understand the significance of what it means for Christ to be resurrected. I want to challenge you to do that. Also, make sure before we go, just, just turn to somebody, say hello to them, welcome them, uh, say, welcome to Mercy Hill, find out their name, whatever it is. They may be going here for the last 20 years. Don't, don't feel stupid. We all do it. But just welcome them, if you will. Then we'll be we'll be gone. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, for today. Thank you for all those who have come. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection, that it is through the resurrection that we know that the payment of our sin has been satisfied and paid. There is no longer a reason for us to be dead and to doomed. Instead, that has been removed, and now we are alive in Christ. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Make sure you guys welcome each other before you go.